0: Listener supported, WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my daily politics podcast. It's Monday, February 5th. Hey, guess who is working the weekend shift? The United States Senate. Did you hear? I guess they did not see their shadows on Friday, so they did not go back into hiding for six more weeks of winter, six more weeks of negotiation on a bill that seemed like it would never come on immigration. They actually finalized the long-awaited bipartisan border deal. They actually finished it and announced it Sunday afternoon. Maybe they wanted to be done on time to watch SZA sing Kill Bill at the Grammys. or Maybe not. Well, maybe Tracy Chapman. No, uh, maybe not. Okay, Joni Mitchell, nothing wrong with that. But did they even stay up late enough to see her? Did they even know that Both Sides Now is not a song about both sides of the aisle or criticizing both sidesism? Maybe. Anyway, the bill is out. As described on Politico, it would tighten the standard for migrants to receive asylum automatically shut down the southern border to illegal crossings if migrant encounters hit certain daily benchmarks and send billions of dollars to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, as well as the border. Politico says in addition to mandating a border shutdown at 5,000 daily encounters, Republicans say that's too much, the bill would allow the president to invoke that authority at 4,000 per day. The bill may or may not have enough votes to pass In the Senate, with the 60 votes required to stop a filibuster, here's the main Republican negotiator, Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma, urging his GOP colleagues to vote yes.
1: If we have a crisis on our southern border, and we do have a crisis on our southern border, that is a very real national security problem, we should address that and do what we can to be able to solve that problem, not just hope it gets better or hope that an election
0: solves an issue. An election solves an issue. Remember, Donald Trump is already lobbying against the deal. Senator James Langford, Republican from Oklahoma there. We have the perfect guest for this moment, I think, to describe the deal further and to put it in the bigger context of life and politics in the United States and Central America as they intersect around the border. It's New Yorker magazine staff writer Jonathan Blitzer, who has a new book called Everyone Who Is Gone Is Here. The United States, Central America, and the Making of a Crisis. Jonathan, thanks for coming on. Welcome back to WNYC.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: We'll get to the details of the bipartisan Senate deal and what good or bad effects it might have on asylum seekers or on people here. But would it be right to say your backstory of how we got to this crisis point begins with the Reagan administration in the 1980s?
1: that's right and and in fact it begins even slightly before then which is in 1980 with the passage of the 1980 refugee act which was the first time in american history that the government codified refugee and asylum law in an american statute and so, so
0: that would have been under president carter
1: e- exactly and 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 almost immediately uh the reagan administration takes takes office and then we kind of see you know, the rubber meet the road on this particular uh, on this particular piece of legislation. And of course, it's happening at the height of the Cold War. And so there's a collision of this human rights immigration law ethos as embodied in the act and the geopolitical reality of the U.S. prosecuting this Cold War in the region.
0: And your book tells us how at least 40 years of American presidents of both parties got us to this point. Here's a clip of President Obama in 2012, And you write about Obama in the book as he announced the DACA program, which, as many of our listeners know, allowed protection from deportation for young people who had been brought here illegally by their parents as children but came of age as Americans. He made sure to couple the policy with ways he was getting tough at the border and that Congress was not coming up with policies of its own. Here's Obama in 2012. In the absence of of any immigration action from Congress to fix our broken immigration system, what we've tried to do is focus our immigration enforcement resources in the right places. So we prioritized border security, putting more boots on the southern border than at any time in our history. Today there are fewer illegal crossings than at any time in the past 40 years. We focused and used discretion about whom to prosecute, focusing on criminals who endanger our communities, rather than students who are earning their education. And today, deportation of criminals is up 80%. We've improved on that discretion carefully and thoughtfully. President Obama in 2012. So, Jonathan, you write about Obama in your book and how he tried, I think we heard an example of it in the clip, to give Republicans enough of what they wanted to allow a path for law-abiding, undocumented people, and certainly that generation brought up as Americans from childhood in the DACA policy. So what's the heart of the Obama story as you see it in this context?
1: There are two ways, to my mind, to understand that Obama moment in the broader sweep of the history. Uh, The first is that, you know, in 2014, you basically have the major collision of two kind of big events. First is just the politics. So in 2013, exactly as you heard uh, President Obama describe, there was this kind of steady push toward comprehensive immigration reform. And, and quite significantly, in uh, the summer of 2013, there was a bipartisan comprehensive immigration reform bill that passed the Senate. Um, it later died in the House. And one of the reasons it did uh, was because it collided with this moment at the southern border where there was seemingly overnight tens of thousands of unaccompanied children and families from Central America arriving to seek asylum. There was already a contingent of Republicans in Congress who opposed the idea of comprehensive immigration reform. They were already dragging their feet in the House, but they were looking for a kind of pretext to finally sabotage that bill. And with this sudden drama at the southern border, they had exactly the pretext they needed. And so 2014, to me, is a kind of major watershed moment in understanding this issue, because the politics and the policy converge and explode. And the, the second thing that's significant in understanding this moment in history is uh, there's an inflection point in 2014 or around the kind of period that you're describing, DACA, 2012, 2013, 2014, because for many years the kind of democratic outlook on how to handle immigration was to address the large population of undocumented uh, immigrants living in the United States the estimates had them somewhere around 11 million and and a big part of the thinking on the democratic side was you know we need we we need to do what it takes to get comprehensive reform over across the finish line to provide relief to this population that's been living without papers in the United States for many years, in some cases, decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and at a certain point, the bottom falls out on that agenda because of Republican opposition in Congress. And that really leaves the Democrats in a kind of tailspin because all of this effort over the years, steady and systematic toward that end suddenly gets redirected. And in 2014, there's a new problem, which is people are arriving at the southern border. The center of gravity shifts. And there's really now a kind of human and policy imperative to address these needs at the southern border. That's a whole new category of policy issue. And so, you know, Democrats were unfamiliar with dealing with that particular um, kind of complex operational challenge. Republicans started to game this issue out even more politically. And so in many ways, that's where we remain right now.
0: And what really happened under Trump? I mean, his rhetoric, as we all know, is very anti-immigrant. He he played that Republican intransigence uh, on that kind of deal you were just describing. And that goes all the way back not just to Obama, but you were saying multiple Democratic presidents. So that obviously means under President Clinton. uh, They were trying to do the same thing, more border security that the Republicans wanted in exchange for a path to citizenship, for law-abiding, undocumented people who are already here. And there was, in each generation, uh, a degree of Republican buy-in. You know, John McCain was really not campaigning on any – different kind of immigration policy than Obama was in 2008. Correct me if you think that's wrong. But they, as I recall history, they both um, supported that kind of comprehensive immigration reform. Then it kind of came close in 2013, 2014, as you were describing with another bipartisan push. Um, But the hardline Republicans were against it. And then Trump runs for president in 2016 and taps into that and wins on that, on that passion. So at least in terms of Trump's victory, um, do you, uh, do you see that story the way I just laid it out?
1: Yeah, exactly. And and one other way of understanding it is essentially to see, you know, far right Republicans during the years you described during the years of, you know, uh, George HW Bush, Clinton, uh, George W. Bush, Obama, um, The the fringe members of the Republican Party during those years essentially played the role of spoiler anytime there was a big piece of legislation uh, that came into Congress. And I'm glad you Um,
0: mentioned George W. Bush, because in fairness, he wanted that, too. He had been governor of Texas. He had a a fairly enlightened, if that's the right word, view, or at least, you know, willing to compromise a complex view of immigration. And he got stymied by his own party, even as president.
1: Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of overlap between, you know, moderate Democrats and, and somewhat moderate Republicans on this issue. And and the, the people who were able to sabotage these deals in Congress really kind of gained not just in in, in prominence, but in influence uh, around the time that Donald Trump arrives on the scene. And so I'm thinking about the likes of Jeff Sessions in the Senate, um, who is notorious all, all the way through for being kind of in the wilderness on these issues, for being seen as fringe and kooky and, and, and really quite out there, um, but who uh finally saw in 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 trump an opportunity to weaponize this issue and trump did it on a scale and with a level of successfulness honestly on the campaign on the campaign trail that no one had ever really demonstrated before and so you know what you start to see during the trump years is a real inversion of what in the past was a a kind of grudging consensus uh, about the need for there to be say more legal immigration or eventually some solution um at, at the border and beyond trump Pretty systematically, tried to sabotage not just the legal immigration system, but also to t- to exploit flaws that needed to be dealt with and that could have been dealt with in the asylum system and the refugee program, and, and really use those um, those those weaknesses to run the systems into the ground. And we've basically been dealing with the wreckage ever since.
0: And I guess that's a. A partial answer to the next question I was going to ask you, because Trump's rhetoric, as we all know, has been very anti-immigrant, build that wall and they're bringing crime and drugs, all of that. And there was a family separation policy that drew such a human outcry and a backlash while he was president. But what's the actual Trump administration border legacy?
1: Well, I'm glad you ask it like that, because I think there's this assumption right now when you look at how Republicans perform in polls uh, on issues related to the border and immigration, there's this widespread perception, misimpression, uh, that Republicans have more of a commitment to order at the border. Um, And I do not think that that's the legacy that 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 Donald Trump can campaign on. Um, You know, you mentioned the family separation crisis from the summer of 2018. The idea of that, of course, was to address a population that had posed real operational challenges to American border authorities, which was families coming to the U.S. seeking asylum. There are very strict uh, kind of legal restrictions on how the government can process and handle families because there are children uh, that that the U.S. government owes particular deference to. Um, And the Trump administration's approach was, okay, we're going to brutalize these families at the border as a way of deterring other families and persuading them not to come. And so you obviously saw this horrific period, a real low in in American history. Um, And it was utterly counterproductive on top of it all. And so the next year in 2019, the number of people showing up at the southern border exploded. Um, And so this idea that a, a tough border policy could somehow, you know, rewire Pressures in the region or the wider world is a complete pipe dream, and it always has been. Um, but it's somehow metabolized in our politics. Uh, this notion that you know the tougher you are, the kind of more orderly you are, and that is really not the case.
0: Again, if you haven't heard the the basics on this, as described on Politico, I'm reading the Politico version. It would tighten the standard for migrants to receive asylum automatically shut down the southern border to illegal crossings if migrant encounters hit certain daily benchmarks and send billions of dollars to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, as well as the border. And Politico says in addition to mandating a border shutdown at 5,000 daily encounters, the bill would allow the president to invoke that authority at 4,000 per day. We know the Republicans say that's still way too many, and that's one of the reasons it might not pass, even though a bipartisan group of negotiators uh, has come up with the bill. So, Jonathan, not to get lost right away in some of those weeds, um, I assume you've been paying attention since you wrote this book. What's the headline from this deal, according to you?
1: I see sort of two headlines. Uh, the, the first is, you know, the conversation on immigration generally has has shifted increasingly to the right over the last couple of years to the extent that right now, the context for understanding what is being touted as a major cut at immigration reform uh, is something that's relatively narrow. Uh, It's something that's much less ambitious than we would have seen in the past. And Democrats are much more willing than they've ever been in the past to go to the negotiating table without simultaneously trying to secure things like legalization for undocumented immigrants living in the United States. So the first thing to take stock of is just how this conversation has increasingly drifted rightward over the years, as a result of the acute political pressures that emerge from the southern border. the The second headline on the actual specifics of the bill is, I have to say, under the circumstances, given how, you know, kind of conservative the cast of the conversation has become, and given how quick the White House has been to try to flex its muscles and demonstrate that this shows their seriousness about cracking down at the southern border, uh, I actually think it's much more of a mixed bag than I would have expected. It really does seem to be, a a, a compromise of the different elements at the table. So just as you see kind of harsher measures, such as changes made to uh, standards by which someone would be able to to pursue asylum, or you see measures like allowing the president to declare a border border emergency and quote unquote, shut down the border. There are also built into some of that uh, protections that I frankly would not have expected to see in this bill under the circumstances where it seemed like the Republicans had such an upper hand going into the negotiations.
0: So, for example, uh, from that Politico description that I read, it would tighten the standards for migrants to receive asylum. Is it clear to you how?
1: Yeah. So the first step when someone seeks asylum is to pass a preliminary screening known as the credible fear interview. Um, And essentially- Like in their first
0: contact with somebody from the government, like near the border when they present themselves as an asylum seeker, Right.
1: Exactly. And, and the structural problem right now that exists in the system is the immigration courts are so badly backlogged that it takes years between when someone first passes that initial screening and when they eventually come before an immigration judge to have his or her case be adjudicated. And, so, and the Republicans in many complain,
0: yeah, that's three or four years that they can be in the country and they don't want that number of people to just be in the country without being determined to be uh, legitimate asylum seekers.
1: Yes, and 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 quite honestly, I think there's a lot of bad faith on the Republican side in in these negotiations in general. But 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 actually, that's not such a crazy criticism of the situation. I mean, the system can't function it, in in a certain sense. It's not humane either for people to be forced to live in limbo like that for right. so many years. And it, and it really does incentivize people who don't have strong asylum claims to come, pass the initial hearing, which has a very high grant rate, and then just kind of stay in the United States. Um, and and so there are people who have very legitimate claims that tend to get sort of swept away in this broader dysfunction. So it's not, it's not a, it's not an unreasonable thing for legislators to want to solve. And, and one of the things that this bill does is it basically makes it a little harder to pass that initial credible fear screening. Um, and it also, you know, kind of codifies things that are, were already a part of, uh, that screening and the government's handling of an immigration, uh, an asylum case. So for instance, when you're presenting an asylum claim um, on arriving at the southern border, you essentially have to prove that you're being persecuted and that there wasn't anywhere else in your home country that you could you know, flee to to reduce the threat that you faced. That was a kind of uncodified um, but widely acknowledged burden that an asylum seeker had to clear in order to pass these screenings. Now that is codified in this bill. And so there's no question that these are these are significant changes to the asylum system. We've not seen them ever before. Um, and so that aspect of the bill is, you know, conservative. it, it It's noteworthy. Um, and, you know, it's 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 something probably that the Democrats felt like under the circumstances, they couldn't quite fend off given the political pressure around this issue,
0: so let me get this straight. Somebody who walks across the border and claims that they're seeking asylum. What they encounter is uh, uh, somebody from the Border Patrol, basically a cop, right? Not a judge in a court, not somebody with a deep knowledge of Guatemalan politics and who's in danger from there, say, um, a cop. And if that cop says, no, your story doesn't sound credible, then the person gets turned back?
1: Well- Technically, um, there are there is a there is a core of government agent at a different DHS agency uh, called uh, USCIS, which is Immigration and Citizenship Services, and um, those asylum officers are the ones who conduct these initial screenings. But an important part of this bill and something that I think is quite positive about it is. Uh, measures are taken to make sure that border patrol agents are not part of these screenings. Even if the resources are spread thin at the border, the idea, as codified in this bill, is border patrol agents aren't qualified to conduct interviews that are this sensitive. And the bill specifically mentions these asylum officers uh, to conduct these interviews. Um, And what's more, it it tries to create a broader um, staff of asylum officers to handle the whole of someone's asylum claim. Because what happens right now and what's gumming up the system in many ways is you pass this credible fear interview that's conducted by an asylum officer. And then eventually your case makes its way to an immigration judge. And right now, because of the backlogs, that takes years. But it should be said that there's a lot of variance among immigration judges. So depending on where you seek asylum, whether it's in Texas, say, or Illinois, the, the rates at which asylum is granted vary pretty sharply. Uh, and so the system is really, as it exists right now, not only inefficient, but but quite unfair. And so one of the proposals that, you know, left of center policy experts have been making for quite a while is that there needs to be a dedicated core of asylum officers who handle the whole of someone's asylum claim. Um, they're, in theory, specifically trained in understanding the details of these claims. Uh-huh. Uh, and what's more, they're able to move the claim more speedily than a judge who's backed up with all these other cases. So that's also in this bill. Um, and that reflects something that that you know Democrats have, have wanted for some time, that I do think is a meaningful fix to certain aspects of the technical problems at the border.
0: New Yorker, staff writer Jonathan Blitzer, obviously following all the details of the Senate immigration uh, reform compromise that was announced yesterday, and also the author of The brand new book, which gives decades of context for this, really, really, really good. Everyone Who Is Gone Is Here, The United States, Central America, and the Making of a Crisis. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio. 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.